Hello, good people of Europe. So today I'm actually interviewing Dave. Dave is not just the author of a financial independence blog, but he actually wrote an entire book, which is pretty cool, and he is a PR professional at the same time. So Dave and I were going to dive into his personal life approaches, investment strategy, the book obviously itself, and yeah, effectively cover that, discuss it, and I think it's a pretty interesting conversation. So yeah, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Erminta, and Matthias. So, hello everybody. Welcome back to the Financial Independence Europe podcast. Today I've got an awesome guest with me from the UK, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, Alvar. How are you? Awesome. Great having you, Dave. So today we're actually going to cover something really awesome because we've got our first author on the show today as well and dive into Dave's personal situation as a case study in the UK, how to approach it and as a professional get towards FI and obviously talk a little bit about his book in the end. So to kick this off, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Um, from how did you came in touch with uh, Fi, and why did you decide to write a book? I mean, that's something pretty dedicated. Get a whole book started about fire. Well, I'm from Glasgow. I'm 46 years old. I grew up in Cheshire, and I've lived in Scotland for maybe 30 years. Um, just as I was coming up to the age of 40, I started thinking that perhaps there might be more to life than a very busy job and a very busy life. So I left my very busy job and set up my own company, which gave me a lot more freedom, it has to be said. Then over the course of the next five or six years, as you have to do when you set up your own company, I sort of self-help parlance, I guess, went on a sort of uh, a journey of discovery and spent five or six years going down probably about a thousand rabbit holes and occasionally coming back up clutching a hair. During this time, I started thinking, well, it might be nice to write a book because actually all this stuff that I'm doing, I don't know of anyone else, certainly in Scotland. I don't hear of many people in the UK into all the same sort of things that I'm into. And then as I started mulling the book, the book became... I guess, more and more ambitious as my learning accelerated to the point where I decided, having built up a, a good pot of money through my business, which one needs when, when one's writing a book, I decided to take a year off and write a book, which turned out to be, I think, bar one, actually, the first, well, so... The first UK financial independence book, although there has been one written a few years ago, it turns out. But I think it's the first, well, I know it's the first book to translate, if you like, the US financial independence movement to a UK context. And essentially, you know, for a few years of that six-year journey, that's what I was doing. I was feasting on all sorts of uh, US bloggers and authors and But finding it very difficult to translate some of the sort of technical advice, if you like, to a UK context. And I sort of felt, well, there must be thousands of people like me in the UK in the same boat. So I decided to write a book. The book I would have wanted to read, I guess, six years ago, maybe when I was 39. 
and the book I, I felt other people would want to read too. And Dave, I'm actually one of those people also a couple of years ago was like searching and scouring through the web and finding all those American blogs, Mr. Money Moustache, the med scientists with their 401ks and tax approaches and just not understanding it. Well, obviously understanding the aspects and approaches, but like, hey, what can I do with a 401k? All good and minds and this strategy sounds amazing, but how can I get this done at home in Europe? I'm actually living in the UK myself as well, so this book is extremely irrelevant to me and now I obviously get the technical context around it. But what I would also like to dive in to is we've got a book, that story, but the thousand rabbit holes. So during those six years, I have an idea of what, what it probably means, but I'm really curious what your explanation on it's going to be. Because personally, what I understand under like a thousand rabbit holes, I always dive into hundreds of like different optimization techniques and tech strategies and, oh, I can do this and then it becomes 2% faster or more efficient and cheaper. Can you give me a couple of examples of like those rabbit holes over the last six years? Sure, Albert. I'll give you one particular example. Anyone who discovers a blogger and an author called Ryan Holiday <laughs> tends to go down a lot of rabbit holes. So I found him, and I can't remember how I came across him actually, maybe in early 2015. This is a guy who in 2008 set up an email list. And he had this great idea of, um, if you like, making capital, or not really making capital, sharing the knowledge that he was building up through voraciously reading books by sending out a monthly email list. And he calls it his reading list. Every month he's reading you know, between 10 and 20 books, which is uh, slightly intimidating. And then he sends out a list. Over the first four years of doing that list, he built um, his subscribers, this is from 2008 to 2012, to 5,000, and then launched his, his first book. And, you know, I'm in a similar industry to him in that he worked for American Apparel, and his first book, I think it was called Trust Me, I'm Lying, which was about uh, new PR, if you like, and all the tactics and stunts he was pulling to boost his clients' P&L, essentially. But the real thing about Ryan Holiday is uh, he has a different way of reading. So he buys any book that he's interested in. He reads all the reviews, so he knows what the book's about because he feels, well, I don't want to be spending you know, the first half of the book wondering what point is this author trying to make. He wants to know what point the author is trying to make so he can analyze it and work out what, whether he agrees with it or doesn't agree with it. In addition, to cement his learning when he's going through the book, he writes in the margins and then at the end of every chapter he'll do a precy. Two weeks after he's finished the book, he'll revisit it and just write out on a, on a sheet what he's learned from it. And in this way, he builds up his knowledge across a wide variety of areas. So I used to be a big reader as a kid, you know, a massive reader. But, you know, from my 20s onwards till my late 30s, every new year it was, oh, you've got to read a book a month <laughs> this year. I now read maybe, I don't know, when I'm not writing books, obviously in normal years, between 30 and 50 books a year, I would think. But back then, you know, I just wanted to read a book a month, but I, you know, I'd get through four a year. So discovering this blogger from America 
who has nothing to do with the financial independence movement, although I think he is quoted in that new documentary, Playing With Fire, interviewed that's going to be coming out in the next few months and you know, it's going to be big in America and we all, we all should be watching over here, I think. Um, but anyway, that's an example of a rabbit hole that really, really has increased my effectiveness as a um, person, a dad, but also as a businessman. Oh, yes, great. Wow, and I'm actually Googling Ryan Holiday at this very moment and uh, he has 100,000 subscribers right now. Never heard of him before, but just looking quickly through his blog, the reading list he has going on, and 10 to 20 books a month. That's pretty impressive. I used to read like this goal of like reading 100 books a year. And I'm, yeah, it's obviously how do you define reading a book? Is that like just a 200 book page or is it like just a trailer? Does that count as well? But that's pretty stunning that somebody can process so much information. And like, yeah, why not turn it into a business? If you can get that done, send it out, um, let people know about it. That's a pretty cool feature. Um, we're going to definitely add that one to the show notes. And I also like that one really as like a, a rabbit hole as a life hack, because for most people within this movement, within the financial independence movement, reading books, getting more knowledge or doing things more efficient. That's where life or well, life, a lot of things are about, because obviously it's nice to earn more money, but if it takes you way, way more hours. What's the point? So I always love those little like nuggets of like, hey, now, where do you find the best possible information? And also his approach that you described, like, how do you determine is a book worth reading? Yes or no? Because if I'm going to invest four or five hours of my life, my energy and focus into reading something, it has to be good because otherwise, you know, what's the point of it in the end? So, you know, with having the rabbit hole part covered, what I would like to dive into right now is actually your own business and financial journey. because. You know, getting this done, that takes an enormous amount of time and effort and investment in financial education and just getting it done, having your family on the same page and sacrificing quite a bit to save the amounts needed for one to become financially independent. So where I'm curious about, just can you walk us through, um, you already explained like, well, you know, 20 years ago, I kind of got started with this and like the last six years, but you really like, you know, discover things and search through all the options and there's a whole world has to offer. But I'm just curious, like from you starting out as a young professional up to now, can you walk me through maybe a little bit your career in general, how your financial education developed and then ending up with how do you like personally invest yourself? Are you just a standard ETF guy or real estate? Just curious on that one. Yeah, interesting question. So I went to primary school in Cheshire and secondary school, comprehensive school. This is in, in mid-Cheshire in the, in the 80s. And then my dad got a promoted post and we moved to Durham, Durham City in England, in the northeast of England. Um, and I did sixth form there and then uh, decided I wanted to go to university five hours away in Aberdeen. So I was there for four years and came out of university and did not have a clue what I wanted to do. So I went out of London, stayed with friends for uh, a few months, had a good time there, and then came back home and I, to my parents and thought, well, what is it I want to do? And eventually it was either market research or journalism. So I wrote 100 letters to market research companies and 100 letters to local papers. And I got a call and got called up for an interview in a Glasgow local paper. 
called the Rutherglen Reformer. And the chief reporter at the time, because I'd uh, done a couple of summer seasons at, at Butlins, where I was a green coat. So my job was to chuck people off the dodgems, basically. <laughs> so um, she'd read my CV and thought I'd been a red coat. So she was thinking, oh, this is this would be brilliant, getting this guy up who's been a red coat at Butlins now. And I had to sort of put straight and said I worked on the dodgems. But anyway, I got my start in journalism, uh, which was great, and then did a journalism course, NCTJ course, where I did some you know, work experience at sort of uh, Scottish national newspapers, which stood me in good stead, and then got a job at a news agency, which you basically go around the local area trying to pick up stories, write them up, send them down the wires, and uh, you get paid by uh, national newspapers, basically, per Colmenge. Anyway, didn't really enjoy that too much. or Well, I really enjoyed the job, but I just thought, well, you know, is there, you know, 60-hour weeks, and is this really going to be conducive to family life, this whole <laughs> journalism thing? Because I would have wanted to work on national papers. So I jumped ship uh, over into public relations. So I was in PR. For 17 years, well, I've been in PR for 20, 21, 22 years, but 17 years working for companies. One in Dundee, which was superb, and one in Glasgow. So four years in Dundee, 13 years in Glasgow, both of which were fantastic experiences. And in Glasgow, I worked my way up. And for the last five years, I was head of the office of this, uh, the world's either largest or second largest public relations company. However, I was feeling that public relations was changing because people were consuming media in different ways. So by that, I mean, I don't know if you've read a newspaper recently. Not many people do anymore. In fact, I went on a train journey to town the other day. I didn't see one person reading the newspaper, not even the Metro. They were predictably all on their smartphones. So I saw this change in, in media consumption, but I was so busy, you know, managing staff, hitting targets, keeping clients happy, you know, all the responsibilities of, uh, you know, senior corporate job, um, that I didn't have time to work on my practice. So I started feeling a little bit that I was, when it came to digital, which was becoming increasingly important, winging it. And I like to be in control and across everything and be expert. And it wasn't, it felt like I was slightly pulling the wool over people's eyes in, uh, in some meetings. So I set up on my own and basically thought, well, what's my weakness? Well, that's it. Right. <laughs> I'll sort that out. So for the first year, I just went in on. I mean, I was doing client work as well, but I went on a crash course in digital. I mean, I was literally reading blogs, um, podcasts, or podcasts weren't as big then, but I was just devouring information and getting involved in communities and just learning, which was absolutely amazing looking back on it. Now, that learning sort of made me realize that there was a lot, things had changed. And there was a lot of free information on the internet that I could get my hands on. And it was the best information. It was the latest information. And yes, bloggers, because I've learned so much from blogs over the years, bloggers 
Um, there's always a reason why bloggers are blogging. Um, there's no such thing as a self, selfless act. And many bloggers are consultants, for instance. But no one's going to read their content. No one's going to read what they write if it's not really, really interesting. So I don't care if there's a pop-up on the screen or someone's put an affiliate link in there or at the bottom they're trying to get you to sign up to their newsletter as a throwaway at the end. I don't care. You know, I'm getting all that free and that great information for free. And if I like their writing, I want to be signing up to their newsletter. So that learning process made me think, well, I could do this on all, all sorts of other topics that I'm interested in. So I started getting very interested in productivity and that led on to purpose and happiness. And then one day, by chance, there's this guy called Cyrus Shepard who used to work for Moz, him and Rand Fishkin, who was the CEO of Moz. And Moz is the sort of SEO industry bible. Uh, you might be familiar, listeners might be familiar with uh, Domain Authority. They're the people who run Domain Authority, for instance. So Cyrus Shepard is a world expert in SEO. And I contacted him because I blog myself. And a few of the blogs I've done have been sort of expert roundups. So I'd contacted him for his view on certain things and quoted him in a blog post. And, you know, I'd got to know him a little bit. So when I saw on LinkedIn that he was leaving Moz and setting up his own company, and he did this throwaway comment, which was something like, yeah, and the tone of voice of my new company, I want to be something across between Mr. Money Mustache and Wait But Why. Right. So I thought, well, who are, if Cyrus Shepherd likes these people, why haven't I heard of them? I've never heard of these people. <laughs> so then, like many people in the UK, I had this sort of light bulb moment in, dis I mean, Tim Urban at Wait But Why is absolutely amazing too, but not quite as transformative for me, certainly, as discovering Mr. Money Mustache. So I predictably binged on Mr. Money Mustache. I read pretty much every single one of his posts. And that led and dived through the forums and just, you know, it, his writing was brilliant. It just, I thought, what, what is this movement, this crazy movement that's this mixture of, you know, almost Thatcherite free will, you know, we've got to take responsibility for ourselves, no one will do it for us. Yet all this sort of... Um, finding purpose and happiness and almost, you know, hippie-esque stuff. I just thought, I can't, I can't process this, but it, he makes it all fit together. It's not a mishmash, it's a coherent movement. So I thought, then, obviously, I thought, well, and he's mentioned various US people, so I looked at their blogs, but he mentioned, but I couldn't find it, any means of translating this to a UK context until I dug into this forum and he mentioned Munivator. And again, that was very transformative for me. And I binged on Munivator, you know, absolutely binged. And that was fantastic because in answer to your question about the investing journey, you know, back in the late 90s, I was into, I got into investing. I was very interested in it. I wasn't an expert, but I was interested. And I invested. But we all know what happened in 2000. And I got severely burnt 
And then as far as I could see, every time I looked at it every year, nothing had changed and I shouldn't touch this uh, stock market malarkey with a barge pole. But, you know, discovering Monovator and Mr. Money Mustache made me think, well, yes, there is this way you can invest, you know, index investing. I, I get it. I get it. And I delved in it because I had to understand every aspect of it if I was going to reset to be slightly self-promotional me and my family's lives. So that reading that one LinkedIn post by Cyrus Shepherd just led me again down these rabbit holes, but I wouldn't call financial independence a rabbit hole. For me, you know, it, it's a way of life. And it's not, you know, obviously investing is important, but it's so much more than that. And with my book, what I've tried to do, obviously this is my take on financial independence, but I've tried to tie it all together and make it accessible for people like me six years ago. People who perhaps, you know, on the surface, very successful and confident, you know, people relying on them, uh, fancy this, fancy that. But actually, underneath all that, it's like, well, is this it? You know, uh, having uh, achieved a lot and in my career is this it now and i you know really if i'd had this book six years ago i perhaps although i've really enjoyed all the rabbit holes and all the mistakes i've made over the last six years it would have been a lot simpler yes great so dave that's honestly a really amazing answer because your journey going essentially from you know a to that like in this entire process and how you got to your career and finance wise for myself as a way younger person it's really interesting to see that developing two points i wanted to make quickly regarding the reading in trains and trams and public transports like i think actually people still do read a lot of newspapers but they read them on their kindles or uh, well that's at least what i personally do <laughs> i haven't touched a newspaper in years but i actually do read most uk newspapers simply download them over to my gobo and read them over there and the second point in terms of making a bit of promotion or blogs would just be like hey sign up for my newsletter etc lots of listeners watchers don't understand the amount of time that goes into writing a blog podcast movie whatever content you essentially develop for free for those people and earning a little bit of money uh, on that in most cases actually just to cover the hosting costs because most bloggers really don't make much money it's in the end all just about you know covered a couple hundred of hosting and wordpress costs you got a year that's in most cases where it's really about and yeah everybody should have the freedom to do a little bit of promotion on their content books or whatever so we absolutely support that and then actually one follow-up question on your financial journey what i wanted to ask you said you got burned uh during the oh yeah well 2001.com crash i assume you invested in a couple stocks then and you uh discovered etf investing way later is that your sole way of investing at this very moment just isas and dumping money in an etf and letting it grow like how do you approach that uh, in reset i eventually get to what i call the reset suggested portfolio and i follow that portfolio having done an uh, immense amount of research although i do offer other options 
because even the portfolio I suggest, which is essentially six different geographic index funds, um, is possibly a bit too much hassle for most people. So I do give other options. And personally, I think most people would be best um, investing in Vanguard's Life Strategy 100 and then switch into uh, Life Strategy 80 once they reach financial independence. But And that, you know, I outlined that in the book. In terms of my overall asset allocation, we have a final salary scheme from my wife. We have house equity. Um, we have our investments, which are largely in SIPs, but there's, you know, some of it's in ISAs as well. And across the SIPs and the ISAs, it's invested in exactly, in exactly the same way. In Reset, I also outline a couple more funds, which are called a tilty twist, I think I call it. So we're invested in six geographic funds and then two other funds, one being value and one being small companies, because historically those two asset classes outperform. So um, also to quickly uh, clarify for our non-UK listeners, because obviously this whole podcast is about Europe, but the principles uh, still apply everywhere, even if they're a bit specific to the UK, because the the ISA and the SIPs, the UK tax-deferred retirement accounts, when you mention 80% life strategy funds, that's obviously 80% equities, 20% bonds in that case. Another example could, for example, be the Boglehead ETFs forms. Because essentially what you're saying is go simple, set up you know, an approachable ETF. And even if it's six ETFs or three or four or five, whatever, you're well diversified. You go for a number of ETFs that together will give you a reliable sort of income once you retire. But you can actually apply the 4% rule up to um, if you combine that with a bit of small cap or value investing, if you personally feel comfortable, but that's absolutely fine. And also to add to that, we're all not financial advisors. We just simply quote slash um, debate our own personal experiences. So please do your own research. If you take over any uh, recommendations or things mentioned, just uh, yeah, so everybody knows, do your own research. So Dave, having that kind of covered, uh, where I'm also curious about. so. The book itself, I've read it myself, and I believe you actually haven't uh, mentioned the full name yet on the show. So Reset, How to uh, Restart Your Life and Get FU Money, The Unconventional Early Retirement Plan for Midlife Careerists Who Want to Be Happy. I'm just looking it up on Amazon. And yeah, well, you've actually got some great reviews already going on. So yeah, we on the show, uh, two of us are and me both read the book and both really enjoyed it. A couple UK-specific things, but in general, we feel it does apply to most parts of Europe in the sense of the general knowledge, the general approaches, because finding a non-US book can be pretty tough, and finding a just pure Europe book is almost not possible, because there is none, because everything is so yeah well <laughs> mixed up, and we all have our own countries and we sadly enough don't have the US with its enormous market with all like the exact same regulations. So we from Europe have to be a bit more creative and translate the wisdom from sources into our own specific situations, which will force us to, yeah, well, read more and be a bit smarter. But hey, I think we can get that done. What I would like to ask, 
So say, for example, for our non-UK listeners, what would be the most valuable part of the book for them to check out? Because obviously, you know, say I'm from Germany, say I'm from France, and, you know, I don't have an ISA and I don't have a SIP, but what part of the book like would really apply to me? In answer to your question, I got my first big US blog review today. Uh, not today, last week, from uh, Physician on Fire. And uh, if you've ever read this guy's book reviews, he doesn't take any prisoners. And he reviewed my book and another book, both, he said, aimed at Generation Xs, so i.e. people who were born in the 60s to the early 80s, you know, the generation after the baby boomers, basically. And the other author, uh, I would have been a little mortified at... um, the critique he gave, although he did like the book as well. And he certainly wasn't all unbridled positivity for me, but he seemed to absolutely love it. In fact, he was under the misapprehension, obviously, quite, you know, quite logically, that I was Scottish, uh, even though I'm Northern English. So one of his pithy quotes was, think Tim Ferriss and Mr. Money Mustache meet groundskeeper Willie. That's the Scottish guy from The Simpsons. And they all take a trip to see Marie Kondo. But he said 90% of the book would be applicable to anyone living in the US because that's his target market. So, you know, I think that's probably a good rule of thumb for all the other people living in Europe. Yes, there is stuff on the US, uh, the UK rather tax system and inheritance tax and SIPs and ISAs. But... You know, that's pretty much it. All the rest of it is universal. Finding your purpose, meaning in life, happiness, decluttering mentally, physically, and digitally. You know, working out your stash, which is a a really important concept, your net worth, the importance of one pot. And then having explained the ethos and told the story, because financial independence, I mean, if someone came to you and said, right, I'm going to talk to you about pensions, investing, finding meaning in your life, and a host of other dry topics, you might sort of shut the door and run the other way. So if you're writing a book on financial independence, you've got to tie it together and tell a story. And hopefully, I've done that as I've weaved not just the example of my family, but the views and quotes and all sorts. I mean, there are 512 notes, i.e. references in this book, which I think is unheard of for a sort of self-help stroke personal finance. But the long and the short of it is, I would say at least 90% of this book, and it's written in English, obviously, which is a universal language, would be of interest if you're living in Germany, China, Italy, it, it doesn't really matter. So yeah, I would say buy my book. <laughs> Dave, great answer. And yeah, that's also in the end where it's about because for myself, the whole reason for starting this podcast together with Araminta Machias was also, okay, we want to spread a message that works for everybody. Yes, sometimes we'll have to cover specific situations. Either, you know, that might be living in a country or a certain investment approach that doesn't apply to everybody. But in the end, the major lessons of it, we can still apply to our own lives. 
and not every episode or every topic is for everybody so that in essence is completely fine so Dave also on this show we always want to yeah throw in a couple final questions to wrap up the show and give everybody a few really interesting bits of information to end it up. So to get started on that one, where can people find you in terms of blog, book, Instagram, Facebook, and obviously where can they buy the book? You need to go onto Amazon and it's available worldwide, whichever country you're in. You can go onto Amazon and buy it. Just Google reset how to restart and a yellow cover will come up with a big red button on. You can't miss it. Um, the best way of keeping in touch with me probably is signing up to my newsletter. Now, I never try and sell stuff through the newsletter, apart from my book, obviously. But I feel having done a newsletter for four years and given away stuff for free every week that, you know, buying a book for, well, it's, I think it's about six quid odd at the moment on Amazon because they've cut the price and the nine ninety nine list price isn't, is not too much to ask. Uh, my website, where you can subscribe to my newsletter, is ZoodPR, and that's Z-U-D-E-P-R. ZoodPR is my company, and I named it after my two kids, Zach and Jude. They're always arguing about who's more important in the name. Zach thinks he's more important because he's got the Z, which is the first letter, whereas Ood is three letters, you see. <laughs> anyway, I digress. You can also find me on LinkedIn if you just search for David Sawyer and you'll see Reset and Suit PR. I'm on Twitter as well. I'm not on Instagram. I feel you can have too much of a good thing when it comes to social media, as you'll see when you read the book. Absolutely fair enough. Um, <laughs> what are 20 channels we've out there nowadays? It's just impossible to track every single one. And we'll all definitely add the links to books to the show notes so our listeners can find out about them. And then to go on with the two remaining last questions of today. So what is one resource not well known you would recommend to others reading, using, uh, that's not your own book? If you Google Candid Investment Money Calculator, it's an extremely simple Heath Robinson, if people are familiar with that term, calculator that you can use to put in numbers, six different numbers, and calculate the stash you need to retire on. Another really important thing for UK listeners, particularly, is which did a survey of their members, 6,000 members it was, about what they would need to live on when they become financially independent or retired. Those two resources are very important. The which one sort of gives you a really, really good indication from a pretty large sample size, you know, what you'll be spending, whether you're on your own or with your partner, when you retire. That's very important because you need to know how much you'll be spending after tax every year when you retire to calculate the pot you need to aim for. And when you reach that pot or your stash, when you reach that target, then you'll be financially independent. The money calculator, you know, takes a bit of work to do to get the numbers. But once you've got the numbers, putting it in there and just playing around with your monthly saving, which I hope you'll invest, your monthly direct debit will tell you how long you've got to work 
before you become financially independent. So, you know, once you've done the work outlined in research, in research, the research, actually, when you sit down with your partner and work out, well, if we put this away every month, um, this is when we can retire. This is the age. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, most definitely. And then the very last question of today, what is the number one actionable tip for somebody on the bed to fight? So this can be, you know, like a thing they really have to do every single month or like this one little life hack. You're like, if you do this, then, you know, the uh, results of it will be enormous. Uh, that's easy. Financial independence, you could see it as about sacrifice. And, you know, perhaps you do need to make some sacrifices along the way. But it's really about having a really, really compelling, clear vision that you're working towards. Also, people think, well, it's all right for you. You've got all this willpower. And a lot of people who are on the path to financial independence, I imagine, get this. And you've always got bags of energy. You've got all this willpower. Well, I just don't believe there is such a thing as willpower. So the, the number one hack is, from all of this, is it's about small, working out what you want, getting a plan of how to get there, and then it's about small actions repeated every single day, which sounds a bit boring, and people rail, especially when they're younger, against routines. But if you can automate some of those small actions, you notice the difference in a month or two's time. And you notice the difference in your well-being and happiness levels as well by get, putting your back into it, putting your back into life, because you only get one life and it's about making the most of it, but you've got to work. I definitely like that one. Uh, you only get one life. You've got to work in the end, but make it the best way possible. Dave, thank you so much for coming on to the show and hope to see you soon at one of the meetups here. Alva. I think we've been talking about this for three months and uh, due to me and you and diaries, we've never quite got there. So I'm, it's been an absolute blast and it's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing through your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.